Uh, well, this is it. I feel like uh, the game is it's a baseball game, and it's 18 to nothing, <laughs> 17 to nothing, and we have won. It's the bottom of the ninth and two outs, and the coach sends me in to pinch hit. <laughs> but I'm really glad to be here for nothing else to say thank you. Thank you for all the nuisance and nonsense you went through to travel and get here. Uh, thank you for shifting your life around for a week, especially you guys. You know, you're, you're like atlases. You got the world on your back and you just kind of shuffled it off to the side. And thank you so much, every one of you who came and ministered to us. Thank you. And thanks to all of those guys who came from all over the world. Uh, some of you came uh, out of the hinterlands of the so former Soviet Union, out of Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and um, Europe and Australia and New Zealand and all kinds of places in Asia and Latin America and Chile and Argentina and Brazil. And, uh, just thank you so much for enduring all the rigors of that travel to be here. And uh, you know, it, it weighs on my heart as a, a serious duty and serious responsibility and stewardship before the Lord to make sure that th this accomplishes what you've had in your heart that it would accomplish in your life. And look, I know it's not all about this pulpit. I, I know this is a force in the middle of it, but it's about relationships and connection and encouragement and friendship and fellowship. And that's why so many of you have come back time and again. And some of you came all the way from the Middle East. Some of you came from uh, India. Uh, we are so honored and so thankful. And, and uh, we, we, of course, trust the Lord to accomplish His purposes. And we know one thing for sure. His Word never returns void, but always accomplishes the purpose to which He sends it. And that's been a, a conviction of mine in ministry for so many years. Thank you for making life especially joyful for our volunteers who, who, um, who rush to do this because they know they're going, to be, they're going to be loved and cared for in response to the service they render to you. So uh, I, I don't know how, how to say thanks any, uh, any more simply than that. And thank you from my heart. Patricia has been hovering around all week and, and just uh, praising the Lord with me for for what has gone on this week. Um, this will be captured, and it's already mostly captured already, in a book called The Inerrant Word, published by Crossway. It'll have the biblical, historical, theological, and pastoral aspects of the doctrine of inerrancy. And the contributors to that book, I think there are 25 chapters in the book, and all the men who have spoken this week are making contributions to that book. And we're grateful that uh, Lane Dennis and Crossway have been willing to do that. Thank you, Brother Lane. Thank you for doing uh, Scripture Can't Be Broken as well on the front end of this. And so you're going to be able to capture this. Um, you're also, you, you'll obviously be, be able to download whatever portion of it you desire. All over the place, all over this campus, you saw the, the, the inerrancy statement, the Chicago inerrancy statement that has uh, come out of what is ICBI, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, th that was sort of the historic document that led us into this. 
And a wonderful thing has happened. Uh, the momentum of this whole conference has caused ACE, the Association of Confessing Evangelicals, who possess the documents of ICBI and who have had the mission from heaven given to them uh, to uphold the inerrancy of Scripture, have come to us at the Master Seminary and asked if they could partner with us to keep ICBI alive going forward. And uh, so, in conjunction with ACE, the Master Seminary will sponsor international colloquiums, conferences, and congresses to continue to produce clarifying statements on biblical inerrancy, things that Dr. Moeller said we still need last night. We're going to keep it alive. We're going to have a center for biblical inerrancy right here at the Master Seminary. And if the Master Seminary is going to stand for anything, that ought to be it. So this will be inerrancy central. We're excited about that. We're excited to be asked to do that, uh, to serve the church through all kinds of print and digital publishing, pamphlets, books, premier internet library, and a dedicated scholastic research center here at the Master Seminary on the theme of inerrancy. We're going to keep it alive. Extremely grateful for being asked to do that. Uh, tracing back to Jim Boyce, would have been wonderful to have had him here with us. The Lord hadn't taken him to heaven. I think 75 days after he found out he had cancer, he was in glory. Uh, so that, that's just a wonderful thing. We're so grateful. An inerrant Bible demands expository preaching. If every word is true, every word must be preached. Otherwise, you're editing God. You can't skim lightly across the surface of the text. You've got to embed yourself in its thrust and argument. So I want to just pick one subject to talk about tonight. Start with a question. How important is the truth of life after death? How important is that? Generally speaking, that would be the one most compelling question that any religion would ask. Philosophy doesn't need to ask that question. Philosophy doesn't need to answer that question. Sociology doesn't need to ask it or answer it. But religion really is faced with that question as their raison d'etre. Why do they exist? If, if they can't answer the question, what about life after death? Isn't that the main question that religion has to face? Isn't that the issue that is absolutely the most important? If there is no life after death, then what is the point of religion? For that matter, what's the point of anything? What's the point of morality or what's the point of ethics? Or what's the point of anything? At the heart of Christianity is the resurrection. The heart of Christianity is eternal life in glory. Resurrection life. Bodily resurrection. A whole person living forever in heaven. That's at the end of our gospel preaching. It's not anything temporal. In fact, the gospel calls it effectively for shedding anything and everything temporal. 
Jesus said you have to be willing to get rid of your money, your possessions, your friends, your family, everything, if necessary, to grasp that which is eternal. Sacrificing everything in this world for all that awaits in the world to come. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. God sends His Son into the world that we might have eternal life. That's the gospel. God gives life. Christ is the life. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving Spirit. The message is life, life everlasting, life eternal. The whole Bible ends in heaven. It starts in Eden and it ends in heaven. The eternal new heavens and new earth. We preach life forever with God. I was reading an interesting booklet, a book called The Tattooed Jesus, written by Kevin Swanson. Um, He may be here. Thank you, Kevin, for sending it. He had an interesting little section. It goes like this. The Halloween festival makes for another interesting example, talking about how culture has changed. Technically, the word is of Christian origin, a derivation of All Hallows' Eve. It had nothing to do with Freddy, Jason, and the slasher movies. For thousands of years, the world celebrated the Day of the Dead on or around October 31st. The Day of the Dead seems to have begun after the worldwide flood when many of the descendants of Noah turned their backs on the true story of God's judgment on the world who had rejected His laws. So they chose to commemorate the event in a different way. Rather than celebrating God's mercy on their ancestors, Noah and his family, they spent their time lamenting God's judgment on everybody else. Many pagan peoples around the globe kept the Day of the Dead until the Christian age began to dawn. Then as Christians sought to remember the faithful men and women who served Jesus Christ under severe persecution, All Hallows' Eve became the default holiday for a thousand years or so. As time went on, however, the Day of the Dead made a comeback. And during the apostasy of the 20th century, almost everyone forgot about All Hallows' Eve in favor of the Day of the Dead. There are now more Americans celebrating Halloween as the Day of the Dead than Easter. And there is every year a massive increase in the Day of the Dead paraphernalia. This culture is preoccupied. Thank you for that, Kevin. This culture is preoccupied with skulls and bones and graves and the undead and zombies and vampires, gothic costumes, dark, sinister fascinations with death. Evidence, I think, of a kind of nihilism, the absolute rejection of everything. The Jews, however, in our Lord's day and before believed in resurrection. I mean, that's what made any sense out of their faith. Second Maccabees, around 1 B.C., tells of an elder named Rassus. Rather than fall into the hands of the hated Greeks, he took a sword and disemboweled himself. Then, standing on a steep rock, he tore out his bowels and threw them to the crowd. Second Maccabees 14. So he died. 
I guess. <laughs> and this is what Second Maccabees fourteen forty six says: calling on Him who is Lord of life and spirit to restore those organs to Him again in the next life. That is a crude perception of the resurrection, but it is nonetheless. Another first century A.D., from B.C. to A.D., Jewish writing, Baruch says this, The earth shall then assuredly restore the dead, which it now receives in order to preserve them. It shall make no change in their form. That's bad news. (laughs) It shall make no change in their form, he said. But as it has received, so shall it preserve them, and as it delivered them into it, it shall so raise them from it. For then it will be necessary to show to the living that the dead have come to life again, and that those who had departed have returned. They shall be transformed then into the splendor of angels. They shall be made like unto angels, and be made equal to the stars, and they shall be changed into every form they desire, from beauty into loveliness, and from light into the splendor of glory. So you start out the way you were when you left, and then something happens to change you into all of that. That's the Apocalypse of Baruch, chapter 50. There are documents like the Apocalypse of Ezra and Enoch that cover the same kind of resurrection theme. The resurrection of the body is a common, common subject in the Talmud. The primary eschatological teaching of Judaism was resurrection, life after death, life in the next world. In addition to all of those writings, of course, we have the Old Testament, things like um, Psalm... 16, that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, David says. And Job, who says, uh, though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. And all that is background. Uh, there has always been, in, in religion, the necessity for a life after death to give some reason for religion. Because religion is about God and ultimate things. Strangely, so strangely, and contrary to this, there grew up a sect that was dominant in some ways in the life of our Lord that openly rejected life after death and resurrection. And they were called the Sadducees. Open your Bible to Matthew 22. In spite of all this Jewish belief in resurrection, this group rejected it. And we don't have to guess about that uh, because there are a number of occasions in which it's made very clear. Very clear. In fact, if you'll notice verse 23 at the beginning of the text that we're going to look at, in Matthew twenty-two twenty-three, it says, On that day some Sadducees, oh, by the way, who say there is no resurrection. If you compare that with Acts 23, 8, and the final appearance of the Sadducees in the New Testament account, same thing is said. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That, that, that was the defining reality of their religion. It was what they didn't believe. Very, very important Jewish sect. There weren't many of them, but they had the power. 
they tended to be the high priest, the chief priest, those who ran the operation at the temple. They were a ruling class in Judaism. And uh, they dominated the life of Judaism by the power that they wielded in the temple operations and the money they garnered from the corruption of that operation. They're highly influential aristocrats that sat on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Supreme Court of Israel. Chief priest, high priest, majority of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. The Pharisees were another group, and they were more popular with the people, and they, 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 were, they were sort of the populist theologians. But the Sadducees had the structural power, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were in serious conflict theologically and doctrinally over the fact the Sadducees also didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, that's in Acts 23.8, didn't believe in resurrection. Politically, they made every effort they could to ingratiate themselves to Rome. I mean, if this is all you got, you got to get it when you can. If it's all over and you become protoplasm turning into manure and it's over, uh, when you leave or when you die, you got to make the most of this. So they did everything they could to establish expedient accommodating relationships with the occupying Roman power. They pursued policies that pleased Rome, and thus they angered the Jews. I would assume that at the beginning of our Lord's ministry and the end of our, ministry, of our Lord's ministry, when he, when he went in, and I don't say he cleansed the temple because it was as bad the day after as it was the day before he arrived. It wasn't really a cleansing, but it was an assault at the front of his ministry and the end of his ministry. I'm sure there were a whole lot of Jews who were beleaguered by the corruption of the place applauding in the background because the, the Sadducees were not favorites of the populace. And by the way, they... They disappeared from history in 70 A.D. because all their power and influence and wealth was connected, was connected to the political power which they sustained prior to that under Rome's tolerance. And when Rome was no longer tolerant of the fomenting rebellion and crushed the whole thing, they went out of existence. Now, what about their theology? Religiously, they were very narrow. We always think about narrow legalism as belonging particularly to the Pharisees. Uh, that's not true. They were all legalists in some form. Uh, the Sadducees were very strict and very, very narrow. In applying the, the internal justice of the land, they were actually cruel. Cruel. Josephus tells us, they were, of all the Jews, the most savage in dealing with people. The Pharisees, Josephus says, were lenient. They were traditionalists. They were fundamentalists. They refused to accept the oral law. They refused to accept the scribal law, which was everything to the Pharisees. They prided themselves on being the absolute purists, the guardians of the true, pure faith. They interpreted the five books of Moses, the Torah, more literally than anybody else. They were fastidious in matters of Levitical purity. 
And it is in this kind of a situation that we learn they didn't believe in resurrection. It denied any future life of pain or any future life of blessing. In fact, Josephus tells us they believed the soul and body perished together at death. Therefore, in the next life, there are no penalties and no rewards. Because there's no life. They had no salvation. You didn't need it. They had no messianic hope. But how could such a doctrine arise from a literal interpretation, a hard-nosed, narrow, literal interpretation of the Old Testament? Answer? They believed that God only inspired the Torah, five books of Moses. Everything was subordinated to them. They thought the rest of the Old Testament was arbitrary commentary on Moses. They were protectors of the Mosaic writings which they deemed to be the pure faith. And they said they could not find the doctrine of resurrection in the Pentateuch. So they rejected it. And since all the rest of the Old Testament was negotiable commentary on Mosaic writings, they weren't a mandate level. Now, the Pharisees had argued with them a lot. And they came up with some really interesting arguments. According to some historians, one of the popular arguments the Pharisees cited was they quoted Deuteronomy 31.16 to convince the Sadducees about resurrection. This is what it says. This people shall rise up. That's not going to work. Because the rest of the verse says, and go a whoring. (laughs) That's not going to happen in heaven. Not very convincing. The Pharisees couldn't find a Bible verse in the Pentateuch. This went on day after day, month after month, year after year, this wrangling about resurrection. That's the best you can come up with? That sounds an awful lot, Steve, like some preachers I've heard who take half a verse, you know. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, were definite about the resurrection. They discussed whether... Hang on. Men would be raised with their clothes on or unclothed. If clothed, then they would arrive in heaven in the clothes they had on here. They also felt that people would arrive in heaven, and we read a little about this earlier, with the same physical defects they had before death, at least for a period of time. And they said this, the Jews will rise in Israel. In fact, if you die somewhere else, and you're a Jew in the earth, when you're buried, there are great tunnels so that the body of Jews rolls through a series of tunnels until it 
finally rests in Palestine. So Sadducees and Pharisees were at two ends. They debated it often. And so we pick it up on Wednesday of Passion Week in verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. Um, they don't really play a big role in the early ministry of Jesus, but they're sort of hiding in the wings, remembering what he did when he began his ministry. They didn't get a lot of trouble out of him after that, and then he spent a lot of time in Galilee away from their operations. But he started out this week with action assaulting them, and they saw him as a threat. And when they're threatened, they fight. Their position and their power is tied to the temple. And that's why Caiaphas jumps up, who's the leader of the Sadducees, and says, Look, we better do something about this man, or he's going to ruin our relationships with Rome. John chapter 11. Mark 14 and also talks about how they were scheming to kill Jesus. You'll find them again in the fourth chapter of Acts and the fifth chapter of Acts wanting to kill the apostles. Because the whole thing, I mean, Jesus and his apostles threatened their power. And what made it worse is the apostles were preaching Jesus and fill in the blank. The resurrection. Josephus says they killed James, our Lord's brother. So they're going to bring their issue to Jesus. Now listen, the Pharisees had never been able to trump their argument, never been able to find something in the Pentateuch that could, de could demonstrate the resurrection. Their goal is to trip up Jesus. Since he had claimed to be the Messiah sent from God, since it was clear that he had spoken of resurrection from very early in his ministry. And by the way, I'm not exactly sure how they spun Lazarus, because that had happened at the most a few weeks before this. But they're going to do their best to trap Jesus in some kind of logical absurdity that they can use to mock him. So they approach him. And they introduce an absurd idea about resurrection. Verse 24. So they say, Teacher, Teacher. This is polished scoffing. Teacher. They desire, more than anything, to demonstrate that he is an utterly incompetent teacher. But they throw some flattery at him. Teacher, if a man dies, having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. That's what uh, we call Leverite marriage from Levir, which means brother-in-law. That's Deuteronomy 25. Remember that? Deuteronomy 25. Go back and look at it for just a moment. Won't spend a lot of time there. Deuteronomy 25. 
When brothers live together, verse 5, and one of them dies, has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother, the assumption is that he's single, he's single, shall go in to her, take her to himself as wife, perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is how they they guaranteed tribal succession and the possession of the land the way it had been divided among the tribes. If a man doesn't desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. If he persists and says, I don't desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in uh, the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his feet, off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall declare... This, thus it is done to the man who doesn't build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose scandal is removed. Well, this is a pretty serious thing. Extremely serious. Take off his shoe and spit in his face. This actually first appeared not in Deuteronomy 25. That's where it's kind of codified. It first appeared in Genesis 38. In the household of Judah son of Jacob, because there was a man there named Onan who refused, you remember, that kind of strange situation to raise up a child to his dead brother's wife. And you remember what God did to Onan? What did he do to him? Killed him. The law was originally given in patriarchal times to preserve the name and honor of the oldest son and to guarantee the security of that land for the future. The first child born to the brother-in-law and the wife was considered to be a true son of the family and the heir. And Moses had laid this down as a standard requiring the nearest kinsman to marry the widow and raise children. The most familiar story where that actually took place is the story of who? Ruth and Boaz. And we all know that wonderful story. So everybody knows about Leverite marriage. So here comes this trumped-up, absurd scheme. Now, verse 25, there were seven brothers with us. I don't know what the with us means. Sadducee brothers. And the first married and died. And having no children, left his wife to his single brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Let me tell you, if I'm the fourth, I'm leaving town. (laughs) I mean, I think this is probably before they had rat poison. But something's going on here. Everybody in the family married this woman and they all died. Those are the people who are hearing translation. It really wasn't that good a joke. (laughs) So they say, last of all, the woman died mercifully. She could have wiped out an entire generation. So they say, in the resurrection, therefore, who 
whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. So this gives you a good indication of the assumptions of the Pharisees' view of resurrection, that it included marriage. Or they wouldn't have even posed this question. It's just a bizarre notion. It's an absurdity about the resurrection. I want you to see the answer. But Jesus answered and said to them, You're mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. That's direct. You are mistaken. You are ignorant of Scripture. You are ignorant of God's power. You show your ignorance. One could say the bubble blown by the Sadducees is punctured. He discredits them. Now keep in mind, they're the top dogs in the establishment. They're the elite. They're the members of the Supreme Court. You are mistaken. You do err. That's the Greek word planao, from which, which we get the English word planet. Literally, the verb means to cause to wander, to, to wander around. You will remember Jude 13, that false teachers are wandering stars. It's in the middle voice, which means it's reflexive. You cause your own selves to wander around. You are leading yourselves astray. Um, very much like our Lord's word to the Pharisees, you're the blind leading the blind. Mentally, theologically, in terms of reality, you have been cut loose from reality. You're wandering stars. You don't know the scriptures. That is a powerful denunciation of an entire group of people and their entire system. You don't know the graphe scripture. And do you remember that all scripture is what? Inspired by God. God breathed. You don't know the scripture. That's the problem of every wanderer, roaming, floating, disconnected from reality, away from Scripture. And because you don't know the Scripture, you don't know the power of God. And the implication is you don't know God's power operation in resurrection. You don't understand the Scripture. You don't understand the power of God with respect to resurrection. Had you known the Scripture, you would know God's power, and you would understand that God has the power to raise people in a state and a condition where marriage would not be needed. God isn't like you think He is. He isn't limited in power. You think He is because you don't know the Scripture. You don't know how powerful God is. So in verse 30, He helps them in the resurrection. 
they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nobody's married in heaven. Nobody. The things that necessitate marriage here don't happen there. There's no propagation. I'd like to announce that to the Mormons and the terrorists. There are no 72 virgins sitting on green pillows waiting for heavenly sex. Do you understand how vivid that expectation is? It makes people blow themselves to bits. None of that is in heaven. There's no propagation in heaven. You're not going to get your own planet like the Mormons think and propagate your own spirit children on some celestial planet. Sex, marriage, reproduction, childbirth, that's for this life, not the life to come. This was a pretty severe blow to even how the Pharisees thought about it. For in the resurrection, he says, those things don't exist. They do not exist. It's necessary here, it's not necessary there. Then he says, but are like angels in heaven. Angels don't have physical relationships with other angels. Angels don't propagate. Angels don't have a progeny. There's no reproduction. Angels don't die. They don't have families. And I remind you again, in Acts 23, they didn't believe in angels. Marriage is necessary in this life because people die and the race must be preserved. The next generation must be born in order that God can complete His redemptive purpose. But after death, no one dies. After death, no one is married. After death, there are no such relationships. Luke, in his parallel account to this, says they are equal to the angels in that respect. It's not that we become like angels. We are not like angels. Now we are a little lower than the angels. When we get to heaven, we'll be a little above the angels because we'll be like Christ and like His glorified body. But we never stop at the point of the angels. Our Lord is saying, you Sadducees only show your ignorance. You don't get the power of God. You don't understand that God, as a creator, could create anything He wanted to create. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 for a little reminder of that. Verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You fool. I mean, I don't say that a lot in church when I'm preaching, but there are certainly times when someone is presenting something that they ought to be reminded that's a foolish idea. That which you sow doesn't, even, doesn't come to life unless it dies. You put a seed in the ground, and what happens? The seed dies, the seed dies, and out of it comes life that's nothing like the seed. You fool. That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh isn't the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. They're heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. One glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Stars differ from stars in glory. So is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, 
body raised in imperishable, sown in dishonor raised in glory, sown in weakness raised in power, sown a natural body raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. Wow. Hasn't God already demonstrated the, really the amazing variety of bodies that He can create? You fool. You don't know either the Scripture or the power of God. And then he says this. Let's get specific about your ignorance of Scripture. Verse 31, And regarding the resurrection of the dead, specifically, let's get past your general ignorance and go to the specific point. Regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is, in some ways, the ultimate indictment of people who are fastidious experts holding to the pure faith. And he says to them, haven't you read it? Haven't you even read it? Haven't you read what God said? I have to believe there's some sarcasm there. And then he says this. Verse 32. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Yeah? What does that have to do with anything? Ego me, I am. Emphatic. That the essence of God, the tetragrammaton. What is this? This is Exodus 3.6. You don't have to turn to it. This is Exodus 3.6. Why is this important? Because in Exodus 3.6, when he said that, Abraham was dead. Isaac was dead. And Jacob was dead. And he was still their God. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God speaks of His covenant relation with the patriarchs and makes an identification with those men in the present tense even though they're all dead. In Genesis 26-24, God calls Himself the God of Abraham when Abraham has already died. In Exodus 3 and 4, He calls Himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after all three had died. All three have died in this world but God is still their God, and they still worship Him. When He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He means, I have a relationship with them, and they have a relationship with me. And He singles each of them out. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Personal re reality in each case they are extinct historically, but they are living individuals who still have a relationship with God. The God whom Abraham worshipped 
Abraham still worships. The God who granted Abraham righteousness by faith is still the one who cares for Abraham. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. If you were going to make a point of trying to convince people of something as massive as the resurrection, would you build that point on the tense of a verb? Would you build that entire point after years and years and years and years of trying to find a verse somewhere in the Pentateuch that proved the resurrection? Our Lord knew exactly where to go, and He built the whole case for the resurrection, which is the heart of all religion and the heart of true religion. He built the whole thing on the tense of a verb. Present tense, not past tense. You think inerrancy matters? You think the words matter? Verse 33, <laughs> when the crowds heard this, they were what? Whoa. They were astonished. They were astonished. Luke said, some of the rabbis said, You won. You have spoken well. This new rabbi from Galilee knows the text in the Pentateuch that proves the resurrection, life after death. Amazing, astounding, marvelous. This is our king. And this is Jesus, the great expositor. Father, we thank you for your word. We, uh, we preach a living God, Christ who is our life and a life-giving spirit. We thank you for... The resurrection, we thank you that that's our message. It's not about a better marriage. It's not about better life. It's about heaven, about eternity, eternal glory, eternal bliss, eternal peace, eternal joy, eternal worship, eternal service, eternal fellowship. It's about life everlasting. And for now, it's the spirit of just men made perfect. But in that day when you return, there will be the resurrection. When all the saints of all the ages will receive glorified bodies and resurrection will be complete and will be fitted a body to occupy the new heavens and the new earth forever. This is the heart of the gospel. It's about that. And Jesus hung the whole thing on what we might think is a slender thread, the tense of a verb. May we be so careful in handling your precious word. We pray in his name. Amen.